This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. I know that uh, this is a break from the routines that we normally uh, are, are, do, are used to on a Sunday morning where we get up and we go to church and uh, we pack our kids. And, and you know, as complicated as, as, as that is for some of you, I get and I realize that, um, that it seems like it's simpler, but it, it also seems a little bit more complicated that we have to, you know, get onto a device, look on our TV, watch on our TV this service. So if you're watching right now, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for being a part of, of Life Church and connecting with us, even, th- even though it's through this, this medium. Um, it, several weeks ago, we kicked off this series, Don't Quit. And um, we actually kicked off the series at the, uh, at the very beginning of when this whole pandemic thing started. And so our very first Sunday for the series, Don't Quit, was uh, the first Sunday that we started going to live stream instead of uh, public services. And so that's, that Sunday, you know, I spoke on don't quit on your marriage. That was on the agenda. That's what I was going to speak on. But because of everything that had transpired after that, we decided last week, which was the second part of, that se- of the series, we decided last week to kind of deviate from the series and to, uh, and to talk a little bit about fear and worry. And I hope that last week you tuned in and, and God spoke to you. We have nothing to fear. We live in a world that's crazy, that's fearful, but because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and he has not abandoned us, we can live with hope and with faith and know that God has our back. Today, I'm actually going to pick back up on the series, Don't Quit, because actually months ago for this very Sunday, I had the, the theme, Don't Quit on God. And I think that's very appropriate for us today. I think that's uh, very relevant for us, especially for some of you that might be thinking about, um, you know, everything that's going on, and you are at this point suffering. You're, you're, you're struggling, uh, potentially. Maybe there's been a loss of job. Maybe your small business has had, has had to close down, and, and there is significant struggle in your life. And maybe this thought has run through your mind, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you, have you abandoned us, you know? And maybe that's not what you're doing. Maybe you're not feeling that way, but this is a relevant theme for all of us, is this idea, because when trouble and difficulty come in our life, that's, there's a tendency to want to basically throw up our hands and kind of quit. Today we're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, Paul is really talking to some Christians, and he's talking to the Corinthian Christians. And here's the deal. <clears throat> These are first-generation Christians. They are newly born again, okay? They have, they were, had, they, 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 they worship, they had pagan worship before this. Um, and so when they come to Jesus, they, they come to faith in Christ, what happens is, instead of their life getting better, it actually got worse, because now they were outcasts from their family. Now they were struggling. Now there was a, a lot of persecution, and Paul feels like he has to encourage them and talk to them and say, listen... I understand this is hard. I understand you're going through some difficult times, but don't quit. Don't give up. He's going to challenge them to not give up. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he uses this metaphor, um, this metaphor of jars of clay. He says that we, are, we have these, this hidden treasure in these jars of clay. And it's interesting that he uses this metaphor because um, it's, it's, it's very true. It's very appropriate that there is that we are these jars of clay. Now, what's true about a jar of clay 
is whether it's ornate, whether it's fabulous kind of jar, it's, I mean, beautiful jar. Corinth was known as a place that manufactured, manufactured these jars of clay and they were exported all over the world. Whether it's an ornate jar of clay or whether it's a very basic pot that was made, all of them, all of them are fragile. All of them were susceptible to chipping easily. All of them were, could easily be broken, be broken. And so when Paul says, we are jars of clay in this hard world, what he's trying to say is, yeah, we too can be fragile. We too can be easily chipped or broken. In fact, if you go back to Corinth where they used to make these jars of clay, archaeologically speaking, very few of them have actually been recovered or, or, or discovered intact. Almost all of them are broken down into pieces. And I think that's a very good illustration for our own lives especially in times of struggle, especially in times of heartache, that we can, our lives can be broken. We can be hurt. There can be challenge in our lives. And when this happens, there is a tendency, it's not, not everybody, but there's this tendency where we can just shrug our shoulders at God and say, okay, whatever, God, fine, you've forgotten us. I've, I've heard this, actually. I, 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 I heard a story of a young lady, I heard the story from a young lady that when she was a child, preteen child, she used to pray to God, and she would say to God, God, will you take my uncle away from here? Earnestly bow her knees before on her bed and say, God, take my uncle away, and yet this young girl for years had to endure sexual abuse and physical abuse from, from the hands of her uncle until she was a teenager when finally he was discovered and, and he was arrested and incarcerated. When she tells a story, one of the things that she says in her stories is, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. Now, you say I don't believe in God, and when I hear that, what I oftentimes think when somebody says I don't believe in God is that they are doubting the existence of God. But I don't think that's what this young lady was saying. I don't think that was her problem. I don't think she was doubting the existence of God. I think she was doubting the, she was wondering or questioning why was God absent. Like she wasn't saying, she was saying, I believe in him. I just don't know if I believe in him. Like I don't believe that he doesn't exist, but I don't think he actually cares. I'm not sure that he, I don't, believe that he doesn't exist, I'm not sure that he actually is going to be there when I need him. And I can understand that. I think, in fact, there are many people right now in, in the very season that we're in, that that's exactly how they're feeling. Their businesses have closed down. Their, their jobs have laid them off. Their, their bank accounts are being depleted. And they're wondering, God, where are you? Have you forgotten us? They're not saying, I don't believe in your existence, God, but are you absent? Are you even hearing us? Are you around? Do you do you, do you know that we're here? And so Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, he's going to talk to these Christians, and he's going to, you know, they're discovering that life is hard, and he's going to challenge them. He's going to recognize that they're fragile and things are difficult, but he's going to give them these truths to hold on to, these truths that they need to embrace, especially in times of difficulty, especially in times of trouble. Because here's the deal. When, when trouble comes, there's this recording that starts playing in our head. This thing that starts going over and over and over again in our head, it's things like God doesn't care or my life is just too broken 
or after this is all said and done, I will never be able to recover from this. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to give them a different recording to listen to. He's going to give them some truths to hold on to, some things that he, they can grab a hold on to and say, yes, this is the recording I want to listen to. This is the message that I want, to be, I want playing in my head. He's going to challenge them with faith. But listen, he's not going to describe faith as like pretending that, that nothing bad is happening. That's not really faith. Faith, too, too many people talk about faith as if go outside and it's pouring down rain, stand in the rain and just, and just tell yourself it's sunshine outside. That's not faith. Paul's going to get it. He's going to keep it real, but he's going to be encouraging. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to kind of break the passage down. He says, we are pressed on every side by troubles. Any of you resonate with that right now? Pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. And so for the, the first truth that Paul wants them to embrace is this one. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. Paul is saying, listen, pressure is going to come. He's not saying you'll, if you're a Christian, you'll never have pressure. Yes, pressure is going to come. You will experience pressure. You will. And maybe right now that's what's happening. You're feeling it in all kinds of different directions. You feel like, like, like your bank account's not working out right now. Your job is not working out right now. Your isolation and your depression is not working out right now. You feel pressure, but Paul is saying, listen, you will feel pressure, but you will not be crushed. You will not be crushed. I think a beautiful picture of this is in Exodus where it's a story. It's a familiar story, the story of Moses and the, the deliverance of the, of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And you know the story. I, in fact, this morning I read Exodus 1 through 14. It kind of just put, wrapped my mind around the story of this, of this deliverance. Um, after all the plagues, finally Pharaoh gives up and says, okay, leave. You can go. And he, he lets the Israelites leave. They, they've, been, they've been in slavery for 430 years. And so they leave and they're on the way to the promised land. And then as they're on their way to the promised land, Pharaoh changes his mind. He decides, I don't really want them to leave. He regrets releasing the children of Israel, so he sends his army after them. And just as they arrive to the Red Sea, just as they arrive, it just so happens that this is how it works. Just as they arrive to the Red Sea, the armies catch up to the Israelites. I mean, how coincidental is that? That on one side they have the Red Sea, an insurmountable uh, obstacle, and behind them they have the armies of Egypt. This pressure. Pressure. And I know some of you are feeling pressure. Listen, listen how, to the, how the people respond to this pressure. In Exodus 14.10, says, As Pharaoh approached, this is the armies of Pharaoh, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up, and what did they do? They panicked. Does that sound familiar? Like, is there a little bit of panic going on? Like, have you gone to the grocery store lately and saw that there's absolutely no toilet paper? People thought, you know, I saw a little funny meme the other day, and it said, if, 
if you need 144 rolls of toilet paper for two weeks of quarantine, then you probably should have been to the doctor before, the, before this pandemic. <laughs> it's funny. But panicking. So they panic when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord. So they cry out to God and they said to Moses, here's what they say to Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? <laughs> What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? He didn't make them leave Egypt. Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? No, they didn't say that to him. We said, leave us alone. They didn't say that either. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. You see, they start making up stuff when pressure comes. These lies begin to build in your head when you feel pressure. The pressure's on. And what do we do? We panic, then we blame and complain. You notice what they did? They blamed and they complained, right? This is what we tend to do when the pressure's on. Instead of remembering what God has done for us, we start blaming and complaining. You see, blaming, blaming is kind of the exit ramp to quitting on God. It's kind of like you're going down this highway and things aren't going well, and you, you're contemplating this idea of quitting on God, and then you see the exit ramp says, hey, blame, go this way, this is the exit to quitting on God. It's easy for us to do. You see, if we blame enough, then what happens is eventually we, we in our story of blame, we become the victim. And when we're the victim, then it's easy to quit. It's easy to quit. It's easy to quit and not feel like a quitter because, after all, we're the victim. Blaming and complaining. This is our way of normalizing giving up. Well, here's how Moses responds to their complaints. He says, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. I love this. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. (laughs) Moses basically said, listen, calm down. God is fighting for you. Now, here's a challenge for us. Here's, here's, here's our challenge is that God is rarely early. That's our problem, right? God seems to be just in time. He rarely shows up way ahead of time. In fact, if I was writing this story, if I, was, if I was, had God's ear and I'd say, hey, God, let's plan it this way. Let's do it this way. Here's what I would have done. I said, you know what? You know, God, you could save your people without sending the Egyptian army after them. Just don't let them leave Egypt altogether. Or if you have to send the Egyptian army, why don't you go ahead and just let them conquer the Egyptian army first, show your mighty power there, and then let them have the other obstacle of the Red Sea. Why, why both at the same time? What's funny is God actually has an answer for this. I love how the message paraphrases this in, in Exodus 14, 18. He says, I'll, this is God speaking, I'll use Pharaoh and his entire army, his chariots and horsemen, to put my glory on display. So that the Egyptians will realize that I am God. There's something about pressure. There's something about challenge in our life 
There's something about being in this position where we have nowhere else to turn but to God that God's glory gets put on display. That's what it means for us to be jars of clay. That we have this earthen vessel, we're not much, but we have this power residing inside of us, which is God at work. There's this treasure inside of us. I see this often really in times of pressure, in times of challenge, in times of difficulty. Sometimes people you don't even expect are going to rise up and they begin to display the glory of God. It's happening right now. In fact, as Jairus and Abby were talking about earlier during the, during the time about giving, uh, last week, last week we, we asked you to nominate some people to, to, uh, to, so that we could help in this season. And, and, you know, we were as a church prepared to just kind of do what we can financially to help these, these families. And what is so cool is that there's many of you that said, hey, I want to be a part of that. And you started giving generously to help people that are in need right now. You know what that is? That's God's glory on display. That when the pressure comes, God has this opportunity to shine through us and in us. So when the pressure's on and there's nothing you can do, let God fight for you. Tell yourself this truth. I'm pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm pressed, but I'm not crushed. The second truth that Paul speaks about is in, in verse 8, he says, we are perplexed but we are not driven to despair. Another way to put this is there is uncertainty, but that uncertainty cannot discourage us. I don't know everything. Yes, I am perplexed. We are confused, yes. We have a lot of questions, that's for sure, but we're not in despair because God knows things that I don't know. God sees things that I cannot see. When I was a kid, um, my mom, uh, and she still is to some extent, but she's older now, but we used to have these puzzles all around the house, boxes and boxes of puzzles. And not the little ones, you know, like, not like the 24-piece puzzles, like the 2,000-piece puzzles and the 3,000-piece puzzles, you know. And she would put them out, and, and it, actually she would sometimes use it as punishment for us. Like we're, when we're grounded, she'd like, you can't leave until you make this 5,000-piece puzzle. <laughs> that, was the, that was the grounding. And so we'd make these puzzles, we'd, we'd assemble them, you know, and then... And then my mom had this glue that we would glue the puzzle. After we finished it, we'd glue the puzzle over, and then we could actually mount it on the wall. It was like a, it became a picture that we'd put on the wall. Well, at one time I was uh, in our house, and I found a, a plastic bag. And in this plastic bag were all these piece, puzzle pieces, you know. And I, I went to my mom, and I said, hey, mom, what, what's the deal with this? She said, oh, yeah, that's a puzzle I bought, but the dog ate the box. And so I'm like, I saw that as a, she said, this is her words. Yeah, we'll never be able to put it together. It's like 2,000 pieces or something like that, 2,500 pieces. We'll never be able to put it together. And I said, and I, when she said that, I took it as a challenge. You know, you can't ever say never to me because when you say never, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that, you know. And so she said, we, we just we won't never be able to do that. I said, I'm going to do this. So we got this, this puzzle out, and I spread all the pieces out on this table to start assembling it. Do you know how hard it is to assemble a puzzle without the picture box? I mean, it's, it's impossible. Okay, you know what? I was never able to assemble that puzzle. I mean, because you don't have an idea. You don't see what's going on. And you see, you realize, you then realize that every little piece of the puzzle has a purpose. It has a, a, it has a reason for existing. It locks into a single other piece of the puzzle. But as humans, we don't always see that. God sees it. 
We don't always see it. That's really what faith is all about. Faith is this puzzle that we're working on even though we don't see the, box, the picture on the box. And yet God calls us to live a life of faith, to keep putting the pieces together even though you don't have the big picture. It's kind of like Abraham when God says to Abraham, hey, I want you to go to a place that I'll show you. And Abraham's like, where are we going? He says, I'm not going to tell you. Just go. <laughs> Or you have, you have Joseph who's told you're going to, in a dream, he's told you're going to be, you're going to be a great ruler. And then the next thing you know, he's sold into slavery. Or David is told you're going to be the king of Israel. And then he spends years running from Saul, hiding in caves. Or Mary, who's told that she's going to have a child, she's going to conceive a child. She's like, but I've, I'm a virgin. How can I possibly do that? See, there's this place where we don't understand, we don't see the way, the, way it's, the way it's supposed to look like, but by faith we're living it out, we're working it out. God is putting this puzzle together. And sometimes we're working on it and all we have is a little corner, we just can't see the big picture, but we've got to know that God is working. Are we perplexed? Yes. Are we perplexed? Yes. But we're not in despair because we know that God is at work. Another truth that Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 4, 9, he says, we are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. We're hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. One thing we can be sure of is that opposition will come, but it cannot stop us. Opposition will come. You, know, you understand this. You're experiencing opposition right now. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, is uh, Romans eight thirty one. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, maybe you hear me say that, and you think that's a rhetorical question. Like, right, yeah. yeah. Like, if I'm asking, so I, if it's a rhetorical question, so you have an answer for it, right? My neighbor, he's against me, yeah. My boss, he's against me, you know. My banker, he's against me. They, you know, my money is kind of running low, and they still took that loan payment out. You know, they're against me. But the question isn't who's against you. The question is if God is for you. That's the question that Paul is asking. Do we believe that God is for us? If we really believe that God is for us, then we're not going to give up. We're not going to quit. We're going to persevere. We will because God is for us. So how do I know that God is for me? How do I know that God is with me? Well, verse 32, Paul says, Since God did not spare his, even his own son, but gave himself up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? I mean, God didn't spare his own son. He gave him for us. And if he did that, won't he, doesn't it stand to reason that he's also going to take care of everything else in our life? He's making this argument from the greater to the lesser. That if in this one big area God was willing to work in your life, don't you think that all these other areas of your life God's going to take care of as well? I mean, it stands to reason that that's how it is. And so what we're being challenged here is that not to look at our circumstances to decide whether God is for us or not, to decide whether God is walking with us or not, but instead we look to the cross. We look to the cross. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.35, can anything, here's another question he's asking, can anything separate us from Christ's love? <clears throat> Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry? I mean, this, this, don't these verses sound so, so relevant for us right now? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death 
or we're confined to our houses because of coronavirus or we're losing money in our, in our retirement account? I mean, does it mean he doesn't love us? Here's, here's Paul's answer, verse 37. No, like absolutely not. He does love you. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Paul is saying that victory has already been won. Victory has already been won. My current situation is not determining whether God loves me or not. My current situation is not determining whether, whether he's with me or not. I'm not fighting for victory. I'm not in this world right now fighting and wrestling and, and trying to have faith so that I can have victory. No, vi- I'm fighting from victory. I already had the victory. I have to align myself with God's word and what he's teaching about our future and our hope in him. He goes on in verse 38. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, either our fears for today. That's so relevant. Are you afraid today? Do you feel afraid today? Either our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Are you concerned about tomorrow? I know many are. You're concerned about your bank account. You're concerned about your retirement account. You're concerned about whether you're going to have a job tomorrow or not. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are hunted down. We are hunted down, but we're not abandoned. Fourth truth that Paul wants to give us here is is in verse 9. He says, we get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Let me put it this way. You get knocked down, but you're not knocked out. This, uh, this word that Paul uses here, knocked down, is this idea of like it came out of nowhere. It's like a punch in the gut that just came out of nowhere. It's that late night phone call, right? It's that unexpected diagnosis. It's that devastating accident that you, that you hear about. My daughter called me just today because one of the fellow students that she was um, at the academy with um, just today committed suicide. It's this idea of being punched in the gut. She was just bawling on the other side. We're knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, he says, we never give up. Our bodies are gradually dying, but we ourselves are being made stronger each day. These little troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all our troubles seem like nothing. And I know you hear me read that and you're thinking, wait a minute, Paul, what are you talking about? Do you even understand what's going on in my life? Do you even know? Can you really identify with what's happening right now? Can you identify with this messy divorce that I just went through? Can you identify with the months of joblessness that I have? Can you identify with this sudden death of a family member? Can you even identify with how my kids are breaking my heart right now? You need to be careful with that because Paul can. In fact, Paul, it says of Paul that he was imprisoned unjustly many times. He was beaten with whips five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead. Stone meaning like rock stone, not the other kind of stone. He was shipwrecked three times. He was often homeless, hungry, and thirsty. It says that he knew nakedness and, and, and what it meant to be cold. Paul certainly identifies, and still, despite all the things that he went through, he says, when I look back 
One day when I'm in heaven and I look back, those will seem like nothing. Like nothing. You know, over the years, I've had many heartbreaking conversations with individuals where on the surface they, they just say, I don't believe in God. I just don't believe in God. They've given up. They sit here in church sometimes, I see them, and they just roll their eyes when I say some truths that are really pertinent to them. They just kind of roll their eyes like, yeah, right. They have no place for God. They have no room for God because, after all, they they just don't believe in God. And as I begin to talk to them, I start having this conversation with them. I start digging a little bit deeper. Here's what I oftentimes have discovered that many people who say I don't believe in God, oftentimes what I discover is that they've quit on God, but The reason they've quit on God is because they thought, they feel like God has quit on them. Several months ago, a lady walked into our church here, and um, I saw her eyes were teary, and and she came up to me and she said, hey, is it okay if I'm here? Now, I don't ever get that question. Nobody ever says, is it okay for me to be in this church? (laughs) Um, and so I, I said, of course we do. You know, we, we, everybody's welcome here at Life Church. You know, we don't discriminate. We don't tell people to, to leave or not be here. And then she kind of leaned into me and she whispered in my ear. She said, yeah, but I've had multiple abortions and I just don't think that God will ever forgive me. Had a conversation with her, discovered that she had a long life of drug addiction and divorces, multiple divorces. <clears throat> And all of that stems from this place where she made a mistake and she thought that God had given up on her. There's a story in the Bible of a prophet by the name of Hosea. Um, God calls this prophet to a very unusual task. He says, I want you to go into town to the red light district. There's a woman by the name of Gomer there. She's a prostitute. And I want you to buy her out of sexual slavery. I want you to make her your wife. That's a very unusual request. I'm not sure that I would actually respond to the God on that. I said, God, that's the devil talking. That's not you, God. <laughs> and yet that's what, he, that's what the prophet's told to do. And so he marries Gomer. She becomes his wife. Things are going well. Love starts to develop between them. They start having kids together. One day, Hosea gets back home, and he realizes that Gomer's no longer there. And so he begins to look for her, and he finds her back in the area where he had first bought her out of slavery. She's on a street corner there, and she's in the arms of another man, and it just breaks his heart. And he begins to complain to God, and he starts crying out to God. He said, God, what am I supposed to do now? You told me to marry a prostitute, and I did. You told me to make her my wife, and I did. You told me to take her home with me, and I did. You told me to love her, and I did. What am I supposed to do now? And God answers him. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and buy her back again. I want you to go and take her home again. I want you to go and make her your wife again. I want you to go and love her again. Really? Why? I love how Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 says, this is what God says, so that the people will know that I still love them. Listen. You may feel like God's, like you may feel like I've just, you know, I, I can't. My, my life is so messed up. God, things have gone so bad for me. My life is not worth living anymore, whatever it might be. And maybe you're shaking your fist at God. You need to understand something. God has not quit on you. He's not abandoned you. You'll be pressed, but you'll never be crushed. You'll be perplexed, but you're not going to be in despair. You're going to be knocked down, but you're not knocked out. 
God has not abandoned you. And I feel right now, there are some of you, not all of you, but there are some of you, you listen to me right now, you need to hear this. God has not abandoned you. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for who you are. Lord, we know in seasons and times like this, we know there's difficulty going on, Father. We don't deny it. There's pressure happening. We've been knocked down. God, there are some right now that are listening to me feel abandoned, Father. Their lives are broken. Their bank accounts are emptying out, Father. They don't know what's next. And they, th- they hear of stimulus packages and all this stuff. But, Lord, they're so discouraged. They're so beaten down. God, by your Holy Spirit, will you step into that living room? Will you step into that bedroom? Will you step into that place where they're watching right now? Holy Spirit, and show them that you have not abandoned them. You have not left them alone. You are their God. And even though they're perplexed, they don't understand. They don't get why all this stuff is happening. They don't have to despair. Even though things might have hit them from the side, they weren't expecting it. They're still going to survive. You've not abandoned them. So today, Father, we simply surrender ourselves to knowing that you are in control. We don't see everything. We don't know everything. Sometimes as we're putting this puzzle together, it seems like there's all these pieces and we just don't understand what the big picture is. But we will trust you. Because faith is the assurance of the things that we cannot see. So right now, Father, we place our faith in you and our trust in you. In Jesus' name.